This episode could be triggering for sensitive listeners and contains mature content. It may not be suitable to all listeners. Today's episode has descriptions of particularly brutal injuries, so please consider this before listening. Should you need any emotional support, please see the show notes for telephone numbers that you can call. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are my own and do not reflect the official policy or position of the podcast. Any content provided by contributors such as the host, guests, bloggers, sponsors, or authors are of their opinion and are not intended to malign any religion, group, club, organization, company, individual, or anyone or anything. All of you who are living on this planet, listen to what I am going to say. When the year 2000 is completed, the year that will follow will not be 2001. The year that will follow shall be called Year One, in a generation that will follow the present generation. The generation that will follow will have few or many people, depending on who will repent. These who will repent and come back to God are the ones that will come to Year One out of the next generation, and they will be called the Redeemed. The years between now and year one of the next generation are called the sieve. The person who will manage to go through this period and reach year one of the next generation, that person is fortunate. An extract from the movement's teachings. This is Decoding Cults, and I'm your host, Palsy. This week, we are looking at the movement for the restoration of the Ten Commandments of God, Part 2. In this episode, we will be focusing on the growth of the cult, the beliefs and daily lives of the followers within the movement. We'll also see how it came to an end and the aftermath. During the early 1990s, the movement grew quickly at the various areas where the leaders were living. The majority of the population in southwestern Uganda are extremely poor and mostly uneducated. The people within this region do however carry great respect for religious authority and will believe anything that they are told by those that they revere. Dominic had a special gift for convincing people to listen to his message and also in convincing local authorities and leaders to donate their money to their cause in exchange for religious protection. In 1993, Dominic was reported to his archbishop in Kampala for claims that he had a more direct route to God and bypassed the Pope and the Church. The claims were investigated and he was excommunicated from the Church. He then turned all of his attention to the movement. The main methodology in gaining members was to first approach one and then get them on board and then systematically bring in the rest of the family to the fold. Excerpts from the booklet, A Timely Message from God, would be either verbally shared, printed in newspapers and would eventually be broadcast over the radio. One of these broadcasts, narrated by Joseph, stated in part, 
Quote, Bearing in mind that in the new land there is no religion other than the Ten Commandments, there are no tribes, no clans, or friends, because it is only those who follow the Ten Commandments that will become brothers and sisters to Jesus. They are the ones permitted in heaven. End quote. People who were drawn to the text would be brought to one of the sites to glean further information around the teachings. During the 1990s, the prevalence of the AIDS pandemic peaked at about 22% of the population. The movement used this to further scare an already panicked nation into following them. As part of the teachings which they shared with potential new followers, they stated that AIDS was a punishment brought forth from God, and only by repenting and following them would people be saved from this disease. After being ousted by Teresa in 1993, Credonia, her two companions and Joseph moved back to Credonia's home village in Kanangu. Her parents had passed in 1991 and had left their land to their children. Strangely, each one of her brothers mysteriously died off until she was the sole heir and owner of the land. The new headquarters for the movement was established in Kanungu. They also established an NGO, which was approved by the Ugandan authorities at the time. Credonia constructed a shrine at the graves of her parents, and they became known as the grandfather and grandmother of the movement. Also, the Abraham and Sarah of the movement, even though they were never really directly involved in it. Abraham and Sarah were figures in the Old Testament of the Bible. In a nutshell, Sarah could not have children. Abraham prayed for a child, and God promised Abraham that Sarah would be the mother of all nations. At the age of 90, Sarah fell pregnant and gave birth to their son Isaac. Potential new followers were told that they needed to join the movement in order to properly follow the Ten Commandments. Those new to the movement would be told that they were to sell off all their belongings and donate it to the leaders. Many of the followers were poor and did not have much to give to the movement. In cases like these, they were tasked to write down a list of all of their sins and would be fined accordingly. New members were called trainees. Upon entering one of the compounds, they would be tasked to get rid of all of their clothing and would be provided with a green uniform. Parents and children would immediately be separated, and the children would be put into a school on the property. They were also made to forego their names. Unwed men and women were to be referred to as brother and sister, married men and women were referred to as uncle and aunt, and older members were referred to as grandfather and grandmother. When we overlay the methodology of cult leaders over the aforementioned, we can see that in taking away a person's name and providing them with a uniform, they are basically stripped of their individuality. This method is used to get followers to concentrate more on the group than on themselves. People are more likely to conform to a group. This was proven by Asher's conformity experiment. In this experiment, an individual was placed in a room with a group of people who were actually actors. The person running the experiment would show a card with one line and then another card with lines varying in length marked A, B and C. The participants were then asked which of the lines from the second card matched the line on the first card. 
each of the actors would purposefully give the same incorrect answer, and, in most cases, the unknowing participant would give the answer which the rest of the group gave, even though they knew it was incorrect. Taking this back to the discussion, people will be more inclined to conform to what the rest of the group is doing, even at times when they know it's wrong. For the first few days, trainees were finally trusted with the full content of a timely message from God, and would be made to listen to it on tapes until they knew the content of by heart. The opening of the passage, which is, quote, The Virgin and the Holy Child wish for all the people to restore the Ten Commandments of the Lord, and to repent, and to inform you of the worldwide mission for which Jesus and the Blessed Virgin Mary have come on earth. End quote. Those who have read the complete texts state for the most part it was focused very much on the end of day's teachings. One extract that I could find states, quote, There will be great tribulation upon all of the people, such that has never been experienced by any person since the creation of the world. People will be absent-minded and will develop a spirit of independence of God in their deeds, and this spirit will displease the Creator. He will, in reaction, release to the world chastisements that will include the shedding of blood. End quote. It also speaks a lot about famine and how people will turn on each other and how even animals will turn on people. In one section it states, quote, Domestic animals such as cats and dogs are already possessed by the devil. From these animals Satan is actually fighting against man, particularly those who own these animals. End quote. They even spoke about how food was a bad thing. Quote, those of you who know the importance of holy water should always put it in the food and water you take. It neutralizes the poison from the devil. End quote. Once the trainees had committed the tapes to memory, they would then receive their next tasks. Joseph claimed that he had received a message from heaven which gave him instructions on how a follower's day needs to be spent. The trainees were given these instructions. They were told that four-sevenths of their day needs to be spent in prayer. Two-sevenths of the day needs to be spent on work and one-seventh of the day was dedicated to rest. The trainees would then be assigned tasks within the site, which could range from tending to cattle, cooking, cleaning, farming, building or tending to the church. Trainees would then also attend bi-weekly learning sessions. These sessions started at 8am and ended at 4pm. The apostles would take strict attendance during these lessons and the trainees were made to fast on these days. The lessons would include the rule that speaking was very much discouraged. This was said to be made in an effort to avoid bearing false witness, which is one of the Ten Commandments. People in the movement communicated with a type of sign language or wrote down what they wanted to say. Only the elders were allowed to speak or could allow another person to speak. They were, however, allowed to speak in prayer or at town hall meetings. They would also be taught that sex was strictly forbidden, even between husbands and wives, as this would prevent the temptation of committing adultery, another one of the Ten Commandments. The consumption of alcohol was forbidden as it was deemed to have been turned into poison. 
Holy Communion was not allowed to be taken by unclean hands. This was said to be those of unwashed hands from children that had been playing in the dust, mothers who had changed nappies, or women who were menstruating and had not washed. Also, men who had touched their penises and had not washed. When receiving Holy Communion, three followers had to go up to the altar at the exact same time. Two priests would then deliver the communion to them, it would be placed on their tongues and not in their hands, and they would need to leave the altar at the exact same time too. The world outside the cult was said to be the sinful world, and members were discouraged from interacting with anyone outside of the cult. The trainees were also taught that the end of the world was very close and would be followed by three days of darkness. They were told that they would be saved if they stayed with the movement and followed all of the rules, which included following the Ten Commandments to the letter. There was also mention that some of the apostles would beat the demons out of trainees. One of their more peculiar rules was that they were not allowed to use soap. At the end of each of the lessons, apostles would pray over each and every one of the trainees. The training would last for five weeks, after which the apostles would choose who they deemed fit for full-time service to the movement and promote them to disciples. These disciples would then receive a uniform of green and white and be assigned to their tasks within the group. Dr. Stephen Hassan is an American mental health counsellor who specialises in destructive cults. Being an ex-cult member himself, he went into the field to help other people who leave cults to deal with their trauma and adjust back to normal life. He created the BITE model checklist, which stands for behavioral control, information control, thought control, and emotional control. This list can be used to measure the group that you belong to to see if it's well-meaning or bad. When we measure the movement's teachings against the model, we can see just how controlling they are. Let's look at behavior control. In the movement, every minute of their day is laid out for them. Their clothing is controlled. They spend a lot of time learning the movement's indoctrination. They are separated from their families. Their diet is strictly controlled. They are financially exploited and are made dependent on the movement. These are huge red flags showing behavioral control. When we move on to information control, we see that the movement discourages access to non-cult sources of information by using their own book to give their message and by not allowing children to go to school. They also create a us-versus-them scenario where they are the truth versus the sinful world outside. When we move on to thought control, we see in the movement that they change the followers' names and identity. They teach through stopping techniques, as in the case of the movement where most of the day needs to be spent in prayer, and they forbid any critical questions about the leader, doctrine, or policies. And finally, when we look at emotional control, where in the case of the movement, they promote fear of the outside world and the coming apocalypse. Credonia and her inner circle created a self-sustaining society. The leaders would often meet, but never divulge what was discussed with other members. The leadership also had sort of a security unit. 
These guides would monitor the comings and goings of the followers, and would also on occasion be dispatched to spy on those who were still holding out on joining the group. The followers built all of the buildings, including housing and places of worship. They farmed vegetable and cattle and lived from this produce, and made additional income from selling their produce to the local communities. The followers continued to spend a lot of time in prayer. In an interview with the African exponent, one ex-member stated, quote, Life rotated around prayer, although we also farmed. We did everything possible to avoid sin. Sometimes, if you sinned, they would command you to recite the rosary 1,000 times. You had to do it, and also ask friends and family to help until you had served your punishment, end quote. Their meals were cut down even further. On Mondays and Sundays, they were only allowed one meal per day. The leaders would host town halls where followers could air their grievances. Credonia also instilled great fear among the followers for anything outside of the cult, and even things that came into the cult from outside. Anything from money, clothes, food, or any object brought in from the outside had to first be exercised through prayer. Even though the compounds were surrounded by double walls, surrounding villages noted that many of the group's activities would be performed at night under the cover of darkness. It is said that at its peak, the movement had about four to 5,000 followers. In 1994, Paul Izikori left the movement. He later stated in an interview that he was uncomfortable with the way that the teachings were going against some of those of the Roman Catholic Church. He also started to become disillusioned with the movement in 1993, when, in one of the meetings with the main leaders, Credonia had announced that she had received a message that they were allowed to kill. Now, call me crazy, but if the movement was all about the Ten Commandments, then thou shalt not kill should be included in these beliefs. But, as we know, what cult leaders preach and what cult leaders do are not always the same thing. They would be the occasional defector, most leaving because of the harsh living conditions, but the biggest number of people were said to have defected in 1995. The followers were becoming restless in the fact that they were all working towards the end of days, which was said to happen imminently, but they wanted a more specific date. Needing to placate the followers, Credonia decreed a date in 1995. The day came and went without anything happening, and some of the followers got disgruntled. The leaders tried to explain it away by stating that the world was not ending on that day because it was a, quote, heavenly-based decision, end quote. But some of the followers were angry that they had given up everything and had given all of their money to the movement to buy their salvation only for the promised date not to come. Following this, many members left the group. In cases where a defector had a family member who still resided at the compound, these family members would be sent back to their villages to ensure that the person either comes back or to ensure that they have nowhere else to go by telling untruths about them. When defectors would not return, the whole group would turn against them. With the mass defection and the perceived threat on Credonia's life, 
the Kanungu site became the main compound of the group. The security was tightened around the compound. The other sites were to be satellite sites for people who wanted to follow the group, like pass-through sites. In 1998, the government investigated at the school which was based on Dominic's property. It was found that there were cases of child abuse and child labour. They also found the living conditions of the children unsanitary. The school was immediately shut down and the movement's NGO status was taken away. The followers started to show an increase in hostility during town halls. Instead of listening and attending to their grievances, the leaders would just then quiet them down. Interestingly, those who spoke up would mysteriously disappear. When asked about it, the leaders would simply state that the Virgin Mary had taken them to heaven early for their strength in belief. There were rumblings among the surrounding villagers that they were not happy with what was going on at the compound in Kanungu. The local parish priest, Father Narcissist Bengumisa, went to the group in an effort to get them to stop or leave. He said that when he had met with the leaders, they merely stated that Our Lady had given them a mission and they needed to follow this path that they were going to stay and this was the place that was chosen by her. With the approach of the year 2000, there were many predictions popping up all over about apocalyptic events. The movement was not different. Credonia decreed that the world was going to end on 31 December 1999. The most devout followers worked hard at following the rules in an effort to gain salvation at the end. They even went as far as building a new church or ark as they called it for their coming end. As the followers woke up on the new year, many again were fiercely angry and some went as far as demanding their money back. Credonia used passages from a timely message to explain it away by stating that they were in year one. She further stated that the actual date of the end of the world was Friday 17th March 2000 and that Mary would deliver them, the chosen ones, from quote, a world clothed in flames, end quote. The end of times would be followed by three days of darkness and that only those who stayed at the compound would be saved. At the start of February 2000, the movement kicked off a massive recruitment drive. They advertised through radio ads and distributed thousands of leaflets. The message was based on the fact that this was their last chance at salvation. Around the middle of February 2000, the followers started selling off a lot of their belongings. They began by selling off all of their healthy cattle for the third of the price that they were worth. One Saturday, they sold off everything in their stores. When one of the neighbors asked why they were selling everything, they stated that they needed to buy a new generator and truck. In the beginning of March, Credonia sent out invitations to all of the followers to come and celebrate at the Kanungu compound on the 16th of March 2000. She also sent the security group out to gather up all of the outlying followers and even try and get some defectors. On Tuesday the 14th of March, all of the members paid all of their debts in full, even those that were in arrears, and they also paid up all of their taxes. They went out into the community and made amends for any wrongdoing that they may have caused, and they were also made to fast. 
On the 16th of March, the followers were tasked to thoroughly clean the premises, wash their clothes, and ensure that they fetch enough water for the coming visitors. They slaughtered cattle and feasted on meat and Coca-Cola in the new building. They prayed all night until the next morning. Also, in the late evening of 16 March, Joseph Kubitire went to the local police outpost. He handed them the land titles and the movement's registration documents for safekeeping. Just a warning, the rest of the episode is going to be pretty graphic and will not be suitable for sensitive or young listeners. There were even times that I needed to take a break from looking at and listening to all of these descriptions. On 17 March 2000, all of the followers, men, women and children, walked singing and praising into the old church building, believing that it was the ark that was going to keep them safe, not only from the coming apocalypse, but also the following three days of darkness. When the last of the people entered, the windows and doors were boarded up and nailed shut. A guard was posted outside of the door. The surrounding villagers heard a sound that they described as a bomb going off. When they went to investigate where the sound had come from, they saw huge plumes of smoke and a raging fire at the compound and rushed to go see what had happened. The fire was coming from the old church building. The inferno was so intense that it soon hopped to other buildings on the compound, burning them all to the ground. When the flames subsided, hundreds of bodies were found inside of the church burned beyond recognition. Even the person who was tasked to guard the door did not escape from this fate. The majority of the bodies were found towards the exits, and it looked as if they were attempting to get out. Accelerants were found to have been used in the blaze. In an interview done by Special Assignment, an investigative program, two young boys, brothers, whose grandfather and some other family members had been in the church, stated, quote, when we reached here after they were burnt, we could still see the fire blazing, and those who were burning were turning to ashes and bones. Some people's clothes were getting burnt, and their intestines were coming out of their bodies. End quote. Another local told the African exponent, quote, Everything was covered in smoke, soot, and the stench of burnt flesh. It seemed to go right into your lungs. Everybody was running into the valley. The fire was still going. There were dozens of bodies burnt beyond recognition. We covered our noses with aromatic leaves to ward off the smell, but for several months meat could not be eaten. End quote. Those same two brothers went on to say, quote, We have grown to hate this religion so much because we lost so many of our loved ones and our friends. To see that they were set on fire here and being lied to, told to first sell all their property in order to be worthy, end quote. It was estimated that between 300 and 500 souls lost their lives in the fire, and this included around 78 children. It was a massacre, but it didn't end there. When the fire had completely burnt out, the authorities were drawn to a pit latrine by a particularly awful stench and loads of buzzing flies. They found six bodies in the pit. The strange thing was, they had not been killed by the fire. They were all naked and it was found that their heads had been bashed in. Following a hunch, the authorities decided to go and inspect the satellite sites for the movement. 
they went to Joseph's home, but did not find anything. They then moved on to Dominic's property. They found that one of the rooms had recently gotten a new concrete floor. Dominic had told people that he had built a new cold room. When authorities broke through the floor, they found an additional 155 bodies there in a pit on the property. They also found more bodies on other sites under floors, buried in latrine pits, or even buried in yards. As the police services in Uganda was not very well equipped, they had to outsource assistance to dig up all of the bodies. They used prisoners who would dig barefoot in the sand. When photos of this leaked to the press, there was an uproar around the conditions that the prisoners were working in without protective gear. The Ugandan police responded that they had contracted the work out and supplying protective gear to the prisoners had not been part of the contract. There was also great concern that vital evidence would be lost or contaminated because of this. Including the victims from the church fire and the bodies found, it was estimated that around a thousand people had been killed by the cult. Those people who had not perished in the fire met very tragic ends. Some had been bludgeoned to death, and some had multiple wounds from being hacked by a machete. A few of the victims had been strangled, and some of these were found with the rope still tightly wound around their necks. Some of the recovered remains were said to have been doused with battery acid. It was further estimated that some of them had been poisoned. At the time, there was only one qualified pathologist in the whole of Uganda, so this could not be thoroughly investigated. It was estimated that some of these victims had been killed as far back as January 2000. Some speculated that those who had been killed before the fire were followers who wanted to leave the cult after the last failed apocalypse. Neighbours and community members were shocked. None of them had ever suspected that anything like this was happening right next door to them. They had not heard or seen anything. It was initially assumed that all of the leaders had perished in the fire along with their followers. Rumours started making their rounds that the leaders were still alive. Some people stated that they had seen Credonia on the back of a truck fleeing the scene when the fire had started. It was believed that she had fled with all the followers' money. Others also cited her in African countries, and eventually both Credonia and Dominic were said to be seen in Europe. The last sighting of Joseph was said to be in Malawi. A commission was formed to investigate the incident, and upon completion of this report, they issued international warrants for the arrest of the top leadership. Joseph Kubitire, Credonia Murinde, Dominic Kataribabo, Joseph Kasapurari, John Kamahara, and Ursula Kumunangi. There were also rumours of Joseph having gone into a deep depression, that he had been treated at a hospital but soon left to go back to the cult. Some even speculate that he might have died or been killed before March. To this day, none of them have been found. It seems after all that the end did come for those poor souls who believed in the teachings of the movement. I truly hope that despite their horrible end, they found peace and a blissful afterlife. If you enjoyed this episode, please hit the subscribe button and rate and review us. It'll go a long way into improving the podcast and helping others find it. You can find us on Facebook at the Decoding Cults Group 
and you can email us at decodingcults at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. If there are any topics around the workings of cults which you would like further explanation on, email me or post it in the Facebook group and I will gladly spend more time or even an entire episode on it. Just a reminder to go check out By Design Crafts for any personalized gifts that you might like. The amazing logo art was created by the tattoo artist Jock Jacobs. Thank you so much for listening.